0: You know, the big beasts of the past, I think, had a little more time sometimes to develop debates and arguments than sometimes. So And it is different also, too. We we seem at the moment, I think, almost determined. And I'm not quite sure what the media want, but it does seem to me at times uh, as though they, they seem to want to have a professional politician who does nothing else but politics. And I think there's a problem in that because you are eventually you are the, the the sum of your of your knowledge and parts in other words you know what you've done in the past helps influence and make you understand things better um, i always used to say to anybody who ever asked me i'd like to go into politics i said well don't not just yet
1: my name is johnny ball and i'm the founder of campaign force a not-for-profit that inspires trains and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, showing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest.
0: We meet one of the few politicians who is simply known by his initials, former Scots Guards officer and leader of the opposition, IDS. Sir Ian Duncan-Smith is one of the big beasts and our host Johnny explores this and the types of people we now see in our politics with our guest. Ian generously shares the tales of his parents, including that of his World War II fighter ace father. It really is a special story. It's time for you to meet our guest.
1: We're joined by Sir Ian Duncan Smith, the former leader of the Conservative Party, a vet- veteran of the Scots Guards, and known by many simply as IDS. Good morning, Ian. How are you today?
0: I'm fine, I'm
1: fine Thanks. yeah, very good. Well, I'm absolutely chuffed to be joined by you this morning because you've been um, a big supporter from the off when I approached you for some advice about Campaign Force and you were generous enough to offer um, an endorsement for our website. So thank you so much for that. Um, My pleasure. It's been brilliant. Uh, but I'm really chuffed that you've agreed to come on the podcast today. But um, just to sort of, if we could go back to the start really, what was it like yeah. growing up um, as the son of a former... R.E.F. Fighter Ace. That must have been such a huge influence on you. And did this have an impact on your own aspirations for service?
0: Well, I suppose it did, really. I, like all children that grow up with uh, with particular parents, and in a sense, you kind of get used to who they are as things sort of dribble out into your memory and understanding. Uh, it, my father's uh, record because he ended up with five gallantry medals in the end, two DSOs and three DFCs. Um, and uh, we, as boys, I'm one of three boys, and we had his two daughters as well. But uh, we used to ask all the time about things. We'd read sort of, you know, those old uh, uh, Commando comics and things which he used to read, and Battle of Britain, uh, uh, etc. We'd always ask him about this, and he used to try and answer questions, but he wasn't always very open about it too much. Uh, but we'd see pictures on the walls and things like that, and and eventually, in due course, he um he wrote a book because he said it was the only way really to get it all in perspective rather than telling a story of a few things. Uh, he tried to tell the story of the whole war. It's called Spitfire into Battle. It's done right. actually four editions, astonishingly, and then a hardback edition as well. And I still get letters from people around the world who've read it at uh, you know picked it up at an airport or something and read it. But um, yeah, it, it was interesting really. He um. He was a, a, a tough man, my father. That generation were pretty tough. And actually, funny if I uncovered a film uh, of the BBC did of A Day in the Life of a Squadron in 1942 when he was commanding uh 64 squadron. In, interestingly, they were the first to get the Mark Nine Spitfires uh, after having had a bit of a difficult time, uh, all of these squadrons with the new Focke-Wulf. Um, it then completely outclassed it. But... Um, uh he he used to talk a bit about uh, you know, how you led and uh what leadership was all about. Uh he was uh a very tough leader. I talked to some of his junior pilots and they used to say he was as hard as nails, you know, um there, but you know, he insisted you got it right. Uh and uh he himself, you know, pushed himself always to the limits. So he was tough really and um uh but he was um he, he he loved his country. That's the thing I guess I got off him almost completely was this just peculiar love of of his country. He was uh, considered himself a Scot. He was educated up in Scotland. Uh, his mother was Scots, uh, and uh, but he loved the the, the the United Kingdom, Britain, as he would always call it quite uh, clearly. And uh, yeah, so it was tough. But he taught me a lot about service and duty. Um, it became a sort of byword. Uh, for uh, and he hated he 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 loathed, believe it or not, politics with a passion. He was that generation that loathed politicians because they, you know, he felt the the politicians had let us down in the run to the war and they should have been ready earlier. Um, adored Churchill as they all did, of course, at that stage and didn't really see him as a politician. Fun enough, um, uh, sort of peculiar, but yeah. So duty service. My mother too, fun enough. We tend to talk about one's fathers. My mother had a big influence on me. She was a great reader and lover of history. Um, and she had been a, a, a ballet dancer dancing during the war and gone out to entertain the troops uh, and met my father, actually, funnily enough, a sort of classic love affair, out in Naples when he was commanding the base area there towards the end of the war. Um, and uh, But she talked about, you know, entertaining uh, dancing in in the West End of London or whatever when the bombs were falling, uh, just getting on with it. So you sort of forget really that there is a real sense of of um, of duty even beyond those who were fighting. And I think she taught me that straight away that there was a real resolve amongst them all just to get on with their lives. It's hard to believe now with COVID and and everyone in such a state and a panic about it. And I feel that I wonder what the wartime generation would say to us now, you know, because they lived through death on a daily basis. Uh, the likelihood of dying was impossible to predict. Uh, and yet they got on with their lives. And I wonder if we couldn't do a little dose of that now, a sense of perspective on things, um, rather than all attacking each other and claiming we didn't do this and we didn't do that. And you should have done this. You know, all of that stuff. I wish we'd just come together and calm down really sometimes.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's that's right, and I, mean, I was really drawn to your parents' story as well because I grew up, uh, I was a ballroom dancer in my teens, which uh, podcast first. Not many of our listeners will know that about me, uh, and growing up in Kent as well. Um, the, the 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 Spitfire legend for me and the Battle of Britain story really inspired me. And reading those Commando comics myself, in fact, I've got one over my shoulder on my library, and that's the fiftieth anniversary of the Intelligence Corps special edition. But I was engrossed in those as a child. So your father and your mother's stories, both completely, were, I was drawn to when I was when I have followed you over the years, and. And no doubt that how it rubs off that generation rubbed off in our own service. My yes. grandfather's. Service. It's, it's, it's
0: quite interesting. My father. Um, it told me one thing which isn't in his book. It was a very personal story, uh, um, and even now it uh, it uh, gets to me a bit. But um, he told me about fear, and I was serving. i just finished serving in Northern Ireland. I suppose in a way he thought <clears throat> the time was right. And he, uh, one evening, late in the evening, uh, after a couple of drinks, we just, standing by the fire, I remember, and he said to me, um uh, I, I said, to, I know what it was, he was a, Christopher Lee, the actor, was a good friend of his, because he'd he served in the RAF during the war, and they'd got to know each other, and they stayed friends afterwards. And I'd, I'd remembered a few years back, I'd been at his house, and he had said to me, your father is a man without fear. And I said this to him, I said, you know, the, Christopher Lee said, you were a man without fear. Is that true? He said, no, it's not true. He said, a man without fear is a very dangerous man because he cares nothing for anybody else. He said, I fought the whole war through and I was scared from start to finish. He said, "Uh, the the real heroes, he said, are the ones who conquer their fear. And he said, the thing that you had to realise all the time is what you were, you must never let your colleagues down. And that was the thing that kept you going, he said. And it's, it's, you know, you learn to live with it. And yes, of course, you celebrate and you, uh, you know, you cheer each other on. But he said at the end of the day, it comes home to you very clearly. And it had come home to him after he'd lost a great friend early on in the war, after a very vicious form of combat. He'd come back to find the MPs outside the door. Uh, and uh, he found it very difficult to handle that, he said, over that night. And he said, you only understand fear when you just, it, it it makes you uncontrollable sometimes, he said. And he said, coming to terms with it is uh, is the moment when suddenly the war moves from being an adventure to being a serious job. And every day you do what you have to do at the best that you can do because that helps end it quicker. And at the same time, he said, more importantly, you may save somebody else's life who's uh, close to you.
1: Uh, that's... Oh, thanks for sharing that. That's generous because that insight into that generation... And actually fear is not really something we've spoken about on this podcast or indeed I've reflected on publicly. But it's got me thinking, actually, because I was 18 when I went to Northern Ireland as a young private soldier in the late 90s during the Good Friday Agreement. And when I deployed to Afghanistan, I was 32 and I felt very differently about those two conflicts. I was I I think I was not very frightened when I went to uh, to Northern Ireland, quite frankly, because I was young and but I was probably quite frightened before going to afghanistan particularly the nature of the threat around IEDs, etc and, and and experiencing personal loss of friends but i mean how old were you when you went to northern ireland and how do you reflect on that period now or these years later
0: oh, all right to work that one out i think i was um probably about 20, uh, 20 23 or something like that 23 24 i was reflecting actually on that um uh, because I was reminded of that conversation with my father. I mean, you know, he's a man that got five gallantry medals that was one of the top flying aces um, uh, all the way through. But he put it in perspective to me that, that it's the conquering of the terrible urge of fear uh, and overcoming it, uh, which every single person in combat has to do, um, that, that makes the real hero, not, uh, not the guy who doesn't care, and uh would just do anything he said you all sometimes you have to risk everything, but understanding at the same time why you're doing it is critical, he said otherwise you you become a liability to all those around you. In fact, he said to me that the um the most difficult thing he ever had to do uh was to send a pilot down, uh, and he said the awful thing was you'd get to know something was wrong, you know sometimes he would just turn back because his guns are jammed or claimed that he wasn't well that day and you began to see a pattern and he said it was terrible. He said to have to call in this pilot who you realize had been unable to conquer that fear himself. And you just say to him, I'm sending you down and these people would break down, you know, and he, they used to put this thing. I think he said on the file, which was, uh, LMF. It meant lack of moral fiber. It's horrendous. Uh, he said, but that was the term you had to use. And he said he understood their problem and felt very sympathetic. But he said you couldn't risk the rest of the squadron. Uh, you couldn't risk them at all. Uh, you had to recognize that a man that hadn't been able to overcome this and couldn't deal with it would, 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 would end up having somebody else killed next to them because they just weren't able to take that ultimate push to make sure that their colleague was, was safe. And he said you couldn't live with that. But he said it must have been scarring for them for the rest of their lives. Uh, And, you know, to watch grown men break down in front of you, he said, was really difficult.
1: Well, I I think the only thing that's really changed is the language. But that experience of, of mates and team and mission lives on in our generation of service people as well. And I know from my own experiences in a very political conflict in Northern Ireland, as I've already mentioned, the Good Friday Agreement and had the honour later on to, in civilian life working in, when I worked for the Conservatives of meeting David Trimble, um, which was a huge honour, personal honour. Um, but also your own experience in those political conflicts of North Ireland and the then Rhodesia. And indeed, I believe at the time you were doing some election monitoring as well during that, that mission um how has those military experiences had an impact if any on your own development of political thinking and approach to politics and service would you say
0: I think being in Rhodesia had the biggest effect on me in political terms I um it was I became involved in the negotiations uh, for the first time ever so the Lancaster House discussions my boss General Ackland who was a great man actually uh great fun to be with um and uh he got involved in it and so I had to sort of take the notes and and be ready to get organized and to organize a, a group of soldiers that would be going out. Um, and then we had to, we got out there. We, we When we went out, interestingly, we we were not given any overfly rights because the, the agreement hadn't been signed because uh, there was a standoff. And so the British government took the decision. You know, I sometimes wonder, can you imagine a British government doing this today? I really wish and hope we do have the courage to do something like this. But uh, the, Mrs. Thatcher took a decision, a really bold decision, to send us out there before any agreement was signed to to sort of push us, to push the, the those who were standing off in, in, at Lancaster House. So we had to fly out there because we were given no overfly rights by every uh, Commonwealth country or allies of them across Africa. So we had to fly out via the Azores and Uh, Out through the Atlantic and staged twice out. It took about 18, 20 hours to get out there. Then came in over the Caprivi Strip, as it was in those days, and landed uh, spiraling down onto the airfield. Um, I mean, if they'd managed to knock out that aircraft, they'd have taken out a significant number of senior officers completely. And then we had to get on planning for the first week and a half, no agreement signed. We had to plan everything. And then more British troops came in, and then uh, Commonwealth soldiers came in, and we started the process. But it was witnessing firsthand during the course of that and the negotiations between the uh, the ZANU PF and uh, and Zandler, um and all the Mugabes and and um, and Como and various others. In fact, I was caught once uh, during a negotiation in the Como's house. I wasn't meant to be in the room. He'd asked only for the general to be in there. Uh, so I had to go outside and I went outside and I was wandering around in the garden, little knowing that the windows looked straight onto the garden from where they were negotiating. And there was this most magnificent set of, of avocado trees. <laughs> so I quite happily started picking <laughs> avocados <laughs> because I thought, oh, these will be nice. And I had my briefcase now with about seven or eight of these things in it. And I turned around, and there was Nkomo shaking his head in the window at me. Uh, and I thought, shit, I've probably probably busted the agreement. Um, anyway, I apologized profusely and gave him back half of them. <laughs>
1: Oh, it's, it's funny those little those kind of high pressured moments on operations mm. and the and the the little things that you remember that you recall back, um, yeah, that, like avocados. So yeah, let's remember. So high pressures meeting. Remember avocados, everyone. That will get you through. Um, <laughs> and of course, you mentioned uh, Margaret Thatcher, and you come from the foundations of those big political beasts as you gain prominence into politics and became the leader of the Conservative Party. I mean, do you think that we've gone through a bit of a transition over the years of the big beasts of politics of the 80s and 90s to um, New Labour, Blairism, Brownism, Cameroonism? Um, I mean, what hope is there in the year to come for the generations of politics? What kind of people are we starting to see in our politics are we going through a bit of a change of the guard from the special advisor class to the professional politicians what are we going to face in the future from what you've seen
0: oh i think things have changed dramatically and i think the biggest change and i think for the worst in some senses is the arrival of social media uh social media demands you know hourly minute by minute day by day relentlessly uh you know it's taken over by the echo chambers of vile abuse Um, It's very difficult uh, now. um, The media works on this 24-hour basis. I mean, there is no question in my mind Margaret Thatcher will and should and rightly go down as one of the great British uh, politicians and, of course, Prime Minister. But I just wonder how she and Churchill and many of these others would have managed in the world of relentless, relentless uh, uh, anger that comes out of social media. And, of course, it's populated by... You know, people who just are angry so often. They're just angry people who then say things they wouldn't dare say if they were talking to you face to face. They think they're anonymous. They can hide behind that anonymity. Of course, they're not absolutely anonymous. You can always find out who they are. But they think they are. So you then get these echo chambers of abuse. So I don't know. I think, and I also think that politics uh, now uh, is on a different form. Um, I think the public is less prepared to give people a, the, the kind of benefit of the doubt sometimes on things. Uh, I think papers in the search for their absolute need to get uh, exposes and coverage, uh, you know, rich literally is on the edge all the time. So I don't say that it's wrong or right. I just simply say that, uh, that um, you know, the big beasts of the past, I think had a little more time sometimes to develop debates and arguments than sometimes so and it is different also too. we we seem at the moment i think almost determined and i'm not quite sure what the media want but it does seem to me at times uh, as though they they seem to want to have a professional politician who does nothing else but politics and i think there's a problem in that because you are uh, eventually you are the the, the sum of your of your knowledge and parts. In other words, you know, what you've done in the past helps influence and make you understand things better. Um, I always used to say to anybody ever asked me, I'd like to go into politics. I said, well, don't not just yet Uh, go and do something else, be something somewhere else, learn something from something else that has nothing to do with politics. And then, you know, when you're a bit older, you can think about going into politics because what you then do is you bring something to politics you bring your knowledge, your experience, the the sense of no matter what it is that you've done, if you've run a business, if you've been in the military, if you've, you know, been an airline pilot or something, you, you bring, or a nurse or a doctor, you bring something to politics which adds value. The problem is if, you know, we end up uh, only being kind of what I call full time professional politicians from as early as your university days or whatever, then I think the problem is that that you know you don't bring very much to to politics you, you, what you what you have is then what you glean from politics and politics isn't is, is almost sometimes like looking down a telescope at the wrong end it isn't actually what's really going on uh, because it's in such a bubble so my sense about this is that if we want to have people who have uh, a sense of place and, uh, and an ability to command uh, uh, a, a debate uh, we need to have more time and the other thing i absolutely hate is the time limit on debates in the house of parliament i don't think any of these great politicians would have survived in that i mean you cannot we are in a debating chamber we're not in a speech making chamber but you know when you limit it to three four five or even sometimes 10 minutes people don't take interventions and of course this is a debating chamber and you're meant to take interventions because that's how you develop argument it's not a speech-making chamber, but it's become a speech-making chamber where people read their notes. It used to be terrible in the old days. If you, if, you, if you had a set of notes and you read them, people used to shout at you um, because you're meant to make a speech. Yes, you can have notes to refer to, but now what happens is people clutch their notes and read them because they know they've only got three minutes and they've got to get all these facts out. And um, I think we are diminished by that process. So, uh, you know, I... I i know that government loves all that because government loves it to be tight get their business through quickly but speed and uh, and uh, and the limits are the enemy of good politics and i think the biggest problem we face right now is that uh, and this started really with the uh, the blair and brown government who introduced these Uh, these uh, motions that come at the end of a particular second reading debate, which then puts down a timetable from day one. When I first came in, you you couldn't have a timetable. What happened was the bill would go off into a committee and you'd have to have a hundred hours in a committee before uh, you were able to come back to the floor of the house and have what they call a guillotine, uh, which then limited some of the time. So that gave great scope for people to learn and express uh, and to have proper debates Uh, And I think that's really something I would love to see return, but I guess no government will ever allow that. Wow. So let's not just get
1: frustrated by the people in politics, but also it's the processes as well behind it that are all, that disadvantaging a better politics and better debate. And just before we wrap up, um, Ian, it's, I mean, as leader of the Conservatives, uh, you did put yourself forward. Um, What made you step forward in the first place as leader? And what did you think you achieved during your tenure as leader of the Conservative Party?
0: Well, um, funnily enough, I didn't even think about it uh, much. You know, you kind of have a vague idea in your head. You might one day if the moment was right, but I wasn't really thinking about it. I had some people come to me. I I know everyone always says that, but it was true, and said, you have to stand. And I said, why? You know, it's been uh, been, uh, only two parliaments. I said, you know, most of the leaders I've ever heard of have been around a lot longer. And I think the debate was, where would the other main protagonists take us? And I think there was a moment in Conservative politics where I felt that there was a possibility that the party would just split uh, and cease to be a political force. Uh, So what I tried to do was to uh, find a way for the Conservative Party to not change itself, but remodel itself so that it understood that its core values and beliefs uh, but in a more uh, in a changed setting, uh, were able to take on Blair uh, Blair's form of politics. Uh, there were there was on the one hand a view that you needed to tear the whole thing down and start from scratch, which I used to hear some commentators on the on the right say, you know that this is all over, and and there was his argument. Uh, and then on the other side, you had um, those who uh, wanted to take us more solidly uh, on the European argument into Europe. So there were these great divided camps. And I just thought, well, maybe there is an argument to be made uh, that that actually we could, you know, the Conservative Party survived because it's a values-based party. It's not an ideological party. It doesn't have great strictures on itself. It changes as the constitution changes and as times change. But it's about how you manage that change. So you take everybody with you. Uh, and open up the party to a wider range of people, which was really the thing that I stood on. So, I guess it just kind of came gradually. Really, I didn't. Uh, I don't regret it. Um, uh, it uh, it didn't end as you know you might have hoped, but it was a difficult time. Blair was in the ascendancy at the time, and then of course the Iraq War. Well, no one wants to listen to the opposition during a war or a crisis and uh, uh, and all of that. So, of course, it started with literally my day. I got elected. It was. The Twin Towers took place the day before I got elected, so that meant essentially we spent three quarters of the time when I was leader uh, in the middle of a of a uh, crisis, which the government, of course, is is the thing that everybody wants to hear. They don't really want to hear too much of the opposition. So, so I I'm not making excuses. That's the way it is, you know. And you try and make change. Um, so I don't regret it because it, it uh, during that period I came to the conclusion that the Conservative Party's real change shift needed to be to reach out to those in communities where their lives were blighted by the nature of how they lived their lives, uh, by the way they'd been taken for granted by by councils. Um, They'd been thought of as voting fodder, uh, that they would only ever vote one way, uh, and that, you know, the visits to Easter House and Gallagate and various places, you know, whether it's Paul's and and, and others in um, in Bristol. I mean, all those sort of areas that I went on visits to, to talk to people, to listen to them, I realised actually they wanted change and they wanted a chance for... There had to be a compet a competition for their 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 vote. They wanted to know that if they changed their vote, it would help change their lives, and that's why when I left, I set up the Center for Social Justice, because and that's now still going strong. Um, because I wanted us to, as conservatives, to be able to understand that to change people's lives, we needed to have a set of understand a set of values that we have, we we approached that with, and that's what the CSJ became, and that was the thing that I. I'm very proud of having started, and it came directly out as a result of my time as a leader. So even though I didn't end up having a chance to fight an election, I do feel that we had a big impact on uh, conservative politics afterwards. Um, and uh, I think we did change attitudes towards the concept of social justice. When I first started, nobody would mention the phrase social justice. It was seen as an anathema in conservative politics because of the old Hayakian concept that, you know, social is collective and justice is individual and the two should never go together and that's tautologically true but not in people's hearts if you ask people do they believe in social justice they used to openly say to us in polls yeah of course we do and do you describe yourself as someone that believes it? yes they do do you think more of somebody that believes in social justice the answer is yes uh but it's you know how do you define it and and they were very good about saying their idea of social justice was help for those who need help, but also help for those who deliver the help. And I thought, well, there's a very conservative concept. Uh, and so that's what really made me do that. And I, I do think it had a, uh, an impact on the party. I, I like to believe it did, because, you know, you now get conservatives talking about believing in social justice and genuinely um, you know, caring about these things, and we can debate that properly, whereas before we would never even enter the debate and I think that's very important, so yeah, so sometimes out of i think it in fact funny if it was Claire Short that said to me, "I know this may sound bizarre, but we ran a th- we ran in the c s j we started awards for small community charities, you get forgotten because you all the big people get all the awards and prizes and everything else and, We thought all the real innovation and how to deal with drugs addiction or family breakdown or bad education comes in the communities where these small charities, you know, they are innovative and they they are hands-on and no one's ever heard of them because they're so busy working and they live hand-to-mouth because they find it very difficult to raise money because they're always busy working. And so um, it occurred to me at the time, well, why don't we celebrate them? So we started the CSGA Awards, which are still going today. So we would select them and then we would find sponsors to give them money. At first it was a few thousand pounds. It's now I think 10,000 pounds for, uh, which means a lot to small charity living hand to mouth. And we'd give them a video of what they did, which they could promote themselves on. And it was during one of these awards early on, just after I'd not long after I'd finished being leader that, um, I, I don't know why I was just chatting to her because we'd asked her to come and give her an award. And I said, Oh, well, you know, I said, um, uh, something about she said something to me I can't remember about leadership and and I said yes well you know um, I didn't get to uh, do the election or something and she said "Um, well she said in fact you should look at it differently she said if you hadn't been for the fact you've been leader you may never have started this and the support that you give to others now is a direct result of what you might think as not having worked but in fact maybe in a roundabout way it has worked. And I thought that was quite an interesting remark, actually, and it did stick with me and still sticks with me now because it it means that everything you do in life, sometimes when you think it's not worked or hasn't gone right, but the things you take from it can often mean that other things you do are better and maybe you're going to change something else by learning from what you did first time around.
1: So Ian Duncan-Smith, I couldn't think of a better way to end this episode. That's inspirational. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate or become our mate. Thank you.